0: Snuff production. Welcome to Real Crime Features, I'm Adam Shand. This podcast was originally published as part of New South Wales Police State Crime Command. The Nocturne Rescue of September 1979 is legendary among Water Police veterans of a certain age. This case defines an era in search and rescue that's passed into history before GPS and sat phones, when police relied on crystal set radios, paper sea charts and slide rules to find people lost at sea. The lessons from the operation are still relevant today. Let's take a deep dive into this case with today's Water Police. What went wrong for the Nocturne and what went right, and why it took so long for Bill Moran's remains to be found. It's a story of sliding doors. One decision or action taken in a split second can change everything. In the end, the courage and ingenuity of Bill and Ray Moran were the reasons that there were any survivors at all. Their rescuers came with the same fortitude and some luck.
1: Adam, this was one of the rescues that was spoken about a lot when I joined the Water Police in the early 90s. I was still talking about this rescue up the North Coast. I'm Joe McNulty, Acting Superintendent, Commander, New South Wales Police, Marine Area Command. The Nocturne had it all, Adam. It was one of those jobs where the boat probably shouldn't have been out in those conditions. The conditions were atrocious and increasing during the couple of days of the vessels were being look for and search for, the safety equipment and the decision-making of the master at the time could have prevented uh, this tragedy from happening?
0: Because, I mean, the key thing is the weather. I mean, I think there's a message here for all sailors and and travellers on the coast that... You need to look ahead to the weather. You can't just look at what's at your spot and conclude
1: everything's fine. Now, Adam, that's one of our key safety messages that we put out through our public affairs and our police media section is to always look for the weather. The weather can change very quickly. It can be a nice sunny day one day and then it suddenly turns around and the wind and the seas come up.
2: Mick O'Keefe, Detective Sergeant... Uh, attached to the Marine Area Command, uh, Marine Investigative Group. I'm the Investigations Manager here at the Marine Area Command and I joined the COPS in uh, February 1982, so nearly 40 years. I mean, uh, even in those days, Adam, there were people they could let know, there were systems available to check the weather, check all the conditions and and the forecasting was reasonably good. Uh, these days it's even better, you know, looking back at the the conditions on the day and the conditions that had been forecast, it it did seem no real reason why you would leave in those conditions. And and certainly these days, if something uh, we had a similar sort of job, you'd have to be really looking at the actions of the master in leaving a port to undertake such a trip in those forecast conditions. You know, what went on with the decision-making in terms of why they left, uh, really that's in the master's mind and um, he has responsibility for everybody's safety, not just his own.
0: Fred Markwell died in 2001. He gave evidence at the coroner's inquest into Bill's disappearance in 1980. And while his decision-making came under fire, the coroner made no adverse finding against him. The nocturne tragedy was ruled to be an accident. Ironically, Markwell's decision to delay leaving Moreton Bay by a day put him in the path of the storm. In his defence, Markwell said he consulted all available weather forecasts before setting off.
3: It would have just simply been there's a subtly buster coming. That was how it was referred to. There was never uh, too many um, indications of how strong the wind would be, apart from um, anyone who can read a weather map with the isobars. bars. My name is Sergeant Paul Farquharson. I'm the State Search and Rescue Coordinator for the New South Wales Police Force, uh, Marine Area Command. been in the water police for um, 30 years and been in the New South Wales Police Force for 33 years. What we see there,
0: Paul, is the skipper, Markwell, decides not to put to sea on the appointed day on the Saturday because he wants to fix the steering, he wants to put plywood over the portholes in the bow, and it's one of these first sliding door moments in the story where you think how much further south would he have been had he set off on the appointed day and not been so worried about safety, ironically?
3: Right. Well, you're 100% right. When we do our calculations, when we're searching for a boat or a vessel that's overdue, um, we actually, as per our operations manual, the national operations manual, we, um, we calculate out that yachts, um, an average speed of around five knots. So we could calculate out that he may have been a day earlier, uh, he may have been another 100 miles down the coast. And where would that have put him?
0: Roughly? Uh, Probably around Port Macquarie. So in terms of making a right turn
3: for safety, when the blow was coming, that
0: might have been decisive?
3: Um, Further down the coast, there's a lot more options for vessels that encountered rough weather to come into port, definitely. There's uh, Coffs Harbour, Port Macquarie, Nelson Bay, quite deep, um, reasonably deep entrances. I mean, if you've got a lot of experience, you know not to go. But if you're sort of in the middle middle area, sometimes you err on the side of non-caution and you do go and you put yourself in that position. It, it was a, it was maybe not the best call, but only he, he made that decision uh, and whether he should have turned around and run back into Queensland was another decision that probably could have been made. But, um, yeah, look, it's a hard, hard one. I can't say yes or no. Back then, you know, we had um, men of steel and boats of wood, they used to say, as opposed to today when we've got fibreglass boats and, um, and Kevlar boats and whatnot and the, and the men are made of wood. So, <laughs> um, but the technologies that help those sailors in these days who may not have as much experience definitely um, face rougher conditions. Look at the Hobart race. The, num- the numbers have doubled over the years from 30 years ago, 40 years ago, up to what it is now.
0: The case of missing person Bill Moran is now closed, but some questions remain open. How did Moran's jawbone turn up on Kingscliff Beach 32 years to the day after his disappearance? Was it just a coincidence? And how long did Bill and Pip manage to keep the dinghy afloat before they succumbed? Just how close did they come to making it to shore? The jawbone may yet provide some clues.
3: And tell me, have you ever seen an occurrence like this before in your time on the water? I haven't seen a, a bone wash up after that long, no, definitely not. Paul Farquharson. Well, we've had many, many swimmers go missing, but they've mainly come off the beach, off the beach area, off the rocks area, who may have appeared maybe, um, you know, six, 12, 18, two years later, but certainly nothing of this length. It's quite an amazing find, and it's amazing that the bone is still in any condition at all to be recognised, I would say. One of the the lingering questions is how does a jawbone turn
0: up on a beach that's very popular, people there every day, and it turns up on the same calendar day as the tragedy? I mean, that may well be a coincidence, but there's certain conclusions we can draw about the way things move in a bay like that on a beach like that.
3: Yeah, it's definitely a coincidence with the date. I can't give you any more explanation on that one, mate. (laughs) Um, If you come up with another theory for that, it's yours. Uh, Look, the movement of the bone... um, Considering the distance that they were out to sea when they went in the water, I would suggest that the bone obviously didn't float all the way into the shoreline. So the person's obviously gone into the water, whether they've floated on the surface of the water or they've been submerged under the water um, for a period of time, and that whilst they're under the water, they've moved or they've drifted towards the coast. And perhaps when they've got closer to the coast, they've ended up on the bottom of the ocean, maybe a mile or two off the coast, and with the conditions over the years, the jawbone's been polished up. It's been rubbing in the sand back and forwards, back and forwards over many, many years, and eventually the waves have pushed it up onto the beach. But, look, that would have only occurred, if it had been, I would suggest, a mile, maybe two miles from the coastline where it may have settled on the bottom, but certainly not out from 15 miles, 15, 20 miles. So it looks like Bill and
0: Pip made it much closer to the coast and safety somehow without being noticed by the rescue aircraft and a flotilla of boats. Commander Joe McNulty.
1: A combination of the tide, the movement of shifting sands, storm conditions, parts of William's body could still be buried in along that beach or other beaches along the north coast, but this was the remaining element of his body that remained. Because it's likely that there may be
0: other parts found in the future. I mean, there's no protocol for this, but I guess everyone's aware of that in the area.
1: People are aware of that in the area, and through the familiar DNA traces, we'll be able to reunite those pieces of William's body as well with the family. But we've got to take into consideration it is 40 years ago, so the body would have perished and broken
0: up and decayed at sea. The appearance of Bill's jawbone has brought an end to the story for his family. Police and pilots like Sir Angus Houston, who were involved in the rescue, share that sense of closure. Sir Angus wasn't aware of the developments in Bill's case until our interview. We've got a bit of news about him. His jawbone was found on Kingscliff Beach in 2011. And it's taken nine years to actually identify him through DNA and so forth. Science has come forward. So William Moran has been found.
1: Wow, wow. Wow, uh, nobody ever made me aware of that. It's it's amazing because that's a long... Mind you, that's a long time after, isn't it? 79 through to uh, 2011. That's right. Wow. He made it his jawbone on the beach. I suppose for the family, that's uh, that's the final closure, isn't it? Um, You don't know what happened, you wonder... Where he he ended up? Wow, I, I mean that's just extraordinary. After all these years, because uh, you know I I always regret that we didn't uh, didn't find a boat or the dinghy. How far would it get? And I. I assumed that the, uh, the dinghy would have been uh, swamped anyway.
0: The sea conditions were perilous enough, even for the police launch stack pool. Commander Joe McNulty.
1: I've actually spoken to um, Sergeant Craigs about the rescue he conducted of the Nocturne because the sea conditions were atrocious. 50, 60 knots of wind, you know, that's a, that equates to about 130 kilometres of wind, 10 metre seas, and they were in an old police boat. They were quite proud of the old stack pool at the time, but she probably wasn't fit for uh, what we would call a... A search and rescue mission in those type of conditions, but uh, his tenacity in those conditions and picking up that very faint radar echo was the success of
0: saving three lives at sea. Paul Craggs would beg to differ with Commander McNulty about the stack pool.
2: There was the Mackay and the stack pool, and when they were built, they nicknamed the Nautilus and the Seaview because they spent most of their time covered in water. They welded big eyebrows around from the uh, stem back to the wheelhouse just above the waterline to turn the water back over rather than throw it back over the wheelhouse. The guys here at the Marine Area Command, they are a fearless bunch. Really, a lot of people look from the outside and say, you've got the dream life of the water police. Well, when the work's on here, it's the sort of conditions where no one else, when they've got to go out to sea, when they have to go out to sea because of someone else's actions, It's the sort of weather where no-one else is going out. Everybody's coming in and they're going out. You know, it's um, the nature of the beast. So, yeah, look, I've got the utmost respect for the mariners here that go to sea and and in those sort of conditions, you know you're really putting yourself at risk, your life and the life of your colleagues.
0: Paul Craggs retired from the Water Police in 2002 and still lives in Coffs Harbour, where his part in the rescue began, where he picked up the Nocturne's Mayday calls. Crags would have stayed asleep that morning were it not for the actions of Ray Moran, which have never been officially recognised. I mean, there were a lot of sliding door moments in this story and mistakes that were made and things you can't take back. But when you get to the point where you're lost at sea and your radio's down and the significance of Ray Moran being able to jerry-rig the radio in order to get the Mayday call out. How significant is that?
1: That was one of the key parts of the the survival of those uh, three remaining mariners from that rescue. Commander Joe McNulty. If that radio hadn't been jerry-rigged to get a signal out that was later picked up, they probably all would have perished at sea. Because what were the odds against survival at that point? If they hadn't got the radio um, rigged up, I don't think there would have been any survival. I think they would have perished at sea because the lighthouse keeper was able to pick up a faint radio message of a Mayday call and and give it to Sydney Water Police and the search and rescue authorities in
0: Canberra. Harry Handicott, the lighthouse keeper, was awarded a British Empire Medal Civil Division in 1981 for public service while still serving at Smoky Cape. Harry died in June 2013, aged 90. The Smoky Cape Lighthouse was the last light to be manned on the New South Wales coast. There would be no one to actually hear the Mayday call in the lighthouse today. And let's not forget the role of science in solving this mystery. Without the familial DNA matching to Bill's relative, this case would almost certainly have remained open forever. Paul Farquharson.
3: Oh, it's significant to the family and and definitely it's significant to the police as well. Particularly in the area of maritime and search and rescue, and any search and rescue really in the land as well. I mean, the the police and the volunteers throw everything at it. It's not uncommon for us to put 12 or 15 aircraft up in the air and, you know, a dozen boats out in the water for a three-day period to search for some missing people. And we do take it to the nth degree and we do take it very seriously, what we do, and, and it becomes emotional as well. And the way that the media can portray sometimes um, that brings those emotions down a little bit With when we read headlines like police fail in search for missing person. And I know well, I've had an incident where I, I spent three days on a job and I read that in my local paper and I just said to my wife, I said, look, I said, look at this. I said, the media headlines in the front page said police fail in their search for missing person. And I said, I didn't fail. I said, we just didn't find them. It's as simple as that. We look and look, we put all our technology into it, we put all our uh, emotions into it, and we put all, all our vessels into it, and so do the crews on the boats, they put their lives into it. And uh, look, the reward's not always there, the recognition's not always there, but it's something that we keep coming back and doing because we're very passionate about it.
0: There will be more mysteries solved by the missing persons registry using familial DNA technology. This case was a milestone for manager Glenn Brown. And we've also talked about in previous interviews about the significant number of human remains that are on file in New South Wales and the ability now to look at cases and try to look for that match. What does this case tell you about the capability that's being developed to resolve these cases?
3: Well, it is simply another step in the right direction. We certainly aren't done with DNA technology. We're uh, moving forward now with DNA phenotyping, which is able to give us an indication of who that person may have been in terms of hair colour, eye colour and various other characteristics, but we're also researching and hoping to engage with forensic genetic genealogy, which is the next step beyond that. Carol Field is the manager
0: of the Database and Case Management Unit at New South Wales Health Pathology. She says the next step for Australia is the familial searching of all unidentified remains and all of the relatives of missing persons on the National DNA Database
4: well this familiar searching with the relatives of missing persons is not at the national level yet but this is coming very very soon we're actually testing the national databases there's a extra capability put on the national database to be able to do familial searching, also searching of the mitochondrial DNA as well as the Y chromosome DNA. Now that has never happened in the past, but we now have these new capabilities that makes the missing person space so exciting. Very soon, I'm hoping that we will be able to do familial searching with relatives of missing persons against all of the unidentified remains across the country and that is just going to be a huge step forward for the missing persons. Some of them have waited a long time. You know, we've had some technological barriers along the way. But it's more important to do familial searching with missing person casework. Because if you upload that profile and you don't get a direct match, then the only avenue available is a familial search. So we have to do more of these.
0: Police are also exploring genetic genealogy techniques as developed by private companies in creating DNA databases. Eventually, police will use this technology to solve historic crimes and missing persons cases.
4: I like to think of the genetic genealogy as a bit like familial searching on steroids. It will look at a lot more DNA. No, when we're looking at a DNA profile, an autosomal DNA profile, our current DNA typing kit looks at 20 areas on the DNA. Now you're gonna get two DNA types at each of those 20 areas because you're getting DNA from mum and DNA from dad. So we're looking at 40 DNA types. And those 40 DNA types are pretty good for us to do a familiar search for a parent and child, sometimes for a sibling, if the siblings share a lot of DNA, and occasionally we'll f- we'll get pick up a nephew cousin or you know aunt uncle but that's about the extent of the familial searching reach now a y chromosome can reach a lot further obviously as i mentioned it can follow a paternal line but your autosomal dna is not getting you much past that first degree relatives when you're doing the testing for genetic genealogy, they're not just looking at 40 DNA times. With advances
0: in familial DNA technology, other families will finally get answers to long-standing mysteries, and criminals will also be brought to book. The Nocturne was a terrible tragedy that probably should never have happened. At least now the story comes to a close. The New South Wales coroner has handed Bill's remains back to the family and they'll be interred alongside his wife Pip in Nelson Bay. Ray and Maria Moran still live in Sydney. I'll let them have the last word.
4: Oh, it's a closure because we always thought Bill was just taken by a shark and now there's another story. It's just, uh, you know, I say a lovely closure but... You know, Bill's going to be with Pip, and it's its just a, it's a bit of an end of a love story, isn't
0: it? State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shan, Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolich. The associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand.
4: Listener.